Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Good morning. I bring you greetings from the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, I want to say again that um, it is always uh, joyful. The the folks who were at the retreat heard me say this over and over and over again. it's always joyful to be in a room of other people who are working hard to follow Jesus because following Jesus is hard to do. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm always uh, grateful for the opportunity to be in spaces where people are serious about that venture, uh, but also uh, able to recognize that it's only in humility that we can do this uh, because of how broken we are. Um, and uh, also, it's just helpful to realize that Jesus isn't worried about the fact that we're broken. Amen? You can talk to me if you want to. In my, I, I tell you, in my church, the, the, the people talk to the preacher. Sometimes they throw things at him, but I don't need that. Um, and also, uh, my, uh, my wife, uh, I would want to say this morning, but somewhere tomorrow, which will be our, their Mother's Day, whenever that will be, um, she will be with her mother in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And uh, so I'm not with them on Mother's Day, so instead I just wore a pink shirt <laughs> to uh, commemorate that. Um, my, uh, uh, this isn't listed, in, uh, I, th- I think, for you, but my, I have this title uh, for, for the sermon today. It's called Longings, Stones, and Priests. And we're going to walk through this text. This is the lectionary text for the day. Um, when I'm asked to preach in churches that they don't have a particular topic, um, I'm, uh, I, I think it's reasonable and helpful, at least for me, to just allow the text of the, of the lectionary series speak for us. And one of the things that I invite people to um, continue to bear in mind is that when, whenever we look at the Scriptures, and we can begin by maybe putting back up the first section of the first Peter, um, when we look at the Scriptures, we often want to think about studying the text, and what I want to invite us to consider this morning uh, is uh, to allow the text to study us. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, it's easy for me to be the one who looks at the text and analyzes the text, and I get to be the one who asks the questions and decides what the possible answers are. And I want to suggest that that was never the purpose for the Bible being written. The purpose was not just for me to decide what it says. The purpose was for it to decide what is being said about me and within me. This is God's work doing work in us if we are open to that. And it's hard to do that because, frankly, there are, I'm sure that there are places and parts of my heart, which we will see in just a moment, in which it's, uh, I, 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 might, I might even be witting about this. I might be un- unconscious about this uh, in my resistance to the capacity of the Holy Spirit to come and speak to me, to say things to me that are both of comfort but also things that can be difficult and challenging because Jesus is serious about growing us up into himself. So I want to just invite us to allow the text to study us this morning. Uh, This passage from Peter, uh, it's a letter that Peter has written. uh, Scholars will tell us that he wrote it uh, from Rome to churches in Asia Minor who were under great persecution. And um, I I just want to ask this morning, how many of us this morning have any part of our life that feels like it's under persecution? Now, she's raising her hand. Great. So here's the thing. Like, because if if we're honest, 
we would all be able to identify parts of us that feel like they are being persecuted. Parts of us that feel like they are under attack. And that might be from the evil one. It might be from our spouse. It might be from our boss. It might be from anyone. It might be primarily even from ourselves. Parts of us that are being persecuted. And so I I want us to recognize that in this world in which we live, and of course, if we do believe that we live in the biblical narrative, which I'd have to say, um, I'm not always sure that I believe that. And by that, I don't mean that I don't believe it. I mean, I just don't live like I do frequently, many times in the course of a day. I want to encourage us around these three themes. For those of us who find ourselves being able to identify places of our life where the unfinished business seems to just jump up and tag us, I have three things. Longings, stones, and priests. In verse 2, beginning part of our text, we read Peter writing and saying, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. And in the NRSV, it says, long for, long for pure spiritual milk. So here's the first question. What do we long for? Here's an exercise that you can do at the end of the day or somewhere between now and the next week. Make a list of the things that you like. Get a piece of paper, write them down. What are the things that you long for? I long for a different marriage. I long for a richer I long for a richer relationship with my kids. I long for a better job. I long for a deeper walk with Jesus. Here's the thing. Uh, Many of us don't even know what we long for. And Peter is writing to this people and saying, with intention, long for that which is pure. Long for that which is unadulterated. Long for that relationship with Jesus in which you see him seeing you and is overwhelmed with delight that he gets to be your God, that he gets to be our king, that he gets to be our older brother. What do we long for? And then he says, long for it in the NRSV. Crave it. Crave it like newborn babies. Now, I heard, uh, was Chris up at 12 and 3 and 6, right? Newborns, when they want milk, they want it now. Right. And they want it frequently. Right. They don't want they don't just eat three meals a day. Right. Unfortunately. Right. They eat it like it's every like two to four. Like newborns are feeding literally every two to four hours. Right. To what degree do we crave? Do we long for Jesus with that degree of intentionality and frequency? Right. We are being invited. We are being told we're being commanded to long for to crave for this pure spiritual milk, for this awareness of the kingdom of God, but to crave for it like newborn babies, which means we're going to be doing it often and intensely and intentionally. In fact, to the point where when babies are hungry, what do they do? They cry. They don't ask politely, right? Right? That's not in their DNA yet, right? Are we that aware of our hunger for Jesus that we cry for him like a newborn baby? What are our longings? Now, I have to say that um, I, myself, I'm, I'm, I'm frequently and easily distracted. Frequently and easily distracted such that my longings for Jesus also often get short-circuited and they go into other places. 
right? So they're longing for things in relationships. They're longing for things in my work. They're longing for all kinds of things. And here's the thing. Sometimes when I get distracted and I, because we say in, in, in the business of, of neuroscience, we say all sin begins with distraction. All, it all begins with distraction, my attention being shifted from one thing to another. And I think what Peter's inviting us to pay attention to is that even those things that distract us are hints of what we really long for. Notice, even the things that distract us are hints. God does not leave himself without a witness. So even when I think that what I'm longing for is sex, it's easy for me to say, well, I'm longing for sex and that's not God, so that's got to be bad. No way. You can laugh at that, right? <laughs> I'm longing for other things, and I think because it's not Jesus, it's bad. I want to say, there's nothing that you deeply long for, even in the things that distract you, that is not God trying to come to find your heart. Even when we are distracted, Jesus is coming to find you. Now, this version says, uh, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. But I want to ask this, again, in the NRSV, it says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you have tasted, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like, so crave this, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I, I just want to suggest, we read the Bible, we read about Jesus, and we would say, like, there's very, you know, the evidence is clear. Like, he's a good man. Would you agree? Right? And we would long for that. But here's part of, here's, here's a challenge. I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I was about seven years old. And uh, in my house, I, I was the youngest of three much older brothers. And they were all, uh, they were 18, 16, and 11 when I was born. And they were all out of the house by the time I was about five years of age and married with kids and so forth. Um, and in my house growing up, we all knew that uh, there wouldn't be a, a pet in the house. You couldn't have a pet in the house. Now, my father had grown up on a farm and was an animal lover, but believed that animals belonged outside, right? Not in the house. But my brothers decided that they wanted to get Kurt a dog for Christmas when I was seven years old. Now, I don't have an explicit memory of this. I have memory of this because of the story that has been told to me over and over again. And we had this little eight millimeter film footage of me Christmas morning, walking into the camera's viewfinder, walking over to a red box, picking the box up, and out jumps this puppy, right? Because my brothers had said to my mother, look, we want to get Kurt a dog. And she said, it's fine. You get the dog. I'll take, I'll take care of your dad. <laughs> I'm not sure what that was supposed to mean, all right? So Sunday morning comes, I mean, it's Christmas morning comes, there's the dog. I am out of my mind with delirium. I, I, like, I can't believe it. You know, it's, it's like the second coming. I mean, this is, this is just because somehow someone has altered Lewis Thompson's, my father, Lewis Thompson's like mindset. And I'm just wildly excited. And by three o'clock that afternoon, the dog was gone. Now, here's the thing. I've told this story in my lifetime dozens of times. And most of the time I tell it, it's kind of funny. I told this story back in November to a group of my staff members when our private practice was on a retreat. 
And when I said that the dog was gone by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, my colleagues who were hearing this story for the first time were aghast. And I turned to them and I'm like, like, why are you upset? It was a dog. <laughs> and they're like, no, dude, like, it was a seven-year-old boy. Now, no one's ever, like, stopped me in my tracks like that before. Because, like, it's not child abuse, right? No one, like, my father's not an alcoholic. My dad's not an angry guy. My, my, nobody's being mean to me. I do know that no one ever had a conversation with me about this. And I do remember, I have this faint memory of thinking to myself when, the, when I found, like, kind of the, the trickle down, you know, the, kind of the information got to me. I think, like, I'm going to have to be okay with this. There was no conversation about it. And what I came to discover was that, oh, that's right. Because in my house, when it comes to like, emotionally difficult things, we don't really talk about that stuff. But in the end, what you end up doing is having a relationship growing up in your life where you're really working pretty hard to manage your father's anger and your mother's anxiety. Does that make sense? Because this is kind of how things operated. Because when it was all said and done, my dad's anger was going to be appeased because the dog was going to go. Nobody's going to ask any questions. And my mom in her anxiety couldn't have any conversation with me about this. Now, here's the thing. I'd like to think that I could taste and see that the Lord is good. The problem is that I taste and see the Lord as we all do through the lens of our own development. And so you see, as much as what I want to read about in the scriptures that Jesus is only good, I also, through my own life experience, come to believe, whether I know it or not, that actually God is somebody who I have to manage his anger and manage his anxiety at the same time. And we can't neurobiologically get away from this. And so part of the challenge for me in longing for Jesus is that I also have other parts of my memory and my life and my relationships that are cluttered that make him out to be something other than who he is. Does that make sense? And this is hard. This is part of what makes following Jesus so difficult to do. It's what we are left with in the privacy of our own mind that shapes our longings. But the writer says that when we long for him in this way, he shifts his metaphor and he says, because you want to follow after the living stone. He shifts now. We're moving from babies and milk to stones. And when he says this, he's a come to Jesus, the living stone. Now, I got to tell you, like, this is a metaphor that's kind of tough to get my head around. I've never been, I've never met a stone that was alive, right? I met animals that were alive. I've met people, some of whom were alive. I've, I've never met any stones that were alive. But I want to suggest that this is a powerful metaphor for us. And that's another thing. Like, we can read the scripture, and here's the thing. If we don't go home, to, if, we, if we, we can go home today, yes, we, we heard the scripture, we heard the metaphor, we heard the imagery, so forth. It's really important that we take this imagery, the, what we sense, what we think about, that, that Peter is writing about, and make it manifest in our life. So what would it mean for us to imagine that Jesus is a stone, a cornerstone? I want to suggest that stones are durable. Stones are resilient. Stones last. 
Stones hold things together. Stones are used to build things. Stones are things on which we can stand. Stones are things that we can trust. But they're also living. They're not unfeeling. They're not uncaring. They are pulsating. They are vibrant. They long to know you. But it's also true that there is the part of me that wants to decide how Jesus comes to know me, wants to decide who he is like. I want to decide who Jesus is on my terms. And this is part of the problem, too, with like dealing with a living stone. Uh, sometimes when he encounters you, like granite is hard, right? He comes and finds things and asks us to make changes. He makes demands on us. And he does so kindly but firmly with no compromise. Where are those places today where both the durability of Jesus is something that you want more of, but also you are clearly encountering the possibility of his hardness coming, making demands on us. And then notice, the writer says, because you also are living stones. Remember, we become what we pay attention to. We become what we long for. If I'm longing for this milk, if I'm longing for this stone, I become one. I become this very thing that the writer is asking people to pursue in Jesus. But he also notices that I'm not, he's not just talking to a collection of disconnected stones. It's not just like a pile of stones out there. Right? You're not that. For you are a group of living stones being built into a house. Anybody here ever seen houses built out of stone? You, you like those stones? Like, yeah, I love those. They, 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 you know, in, in the East Coast of the United States, where older houses, like these stone houses are just gorgeous. And I want to suggest to us that this is what God wants to do. He doesn't just want to make you durable, and he doesn't just want to make you vital and alive and pulsating. He wants to make you into that and make you into that and bring you together into a house. And that house is a living, durable home. But here's the thing. I mean, this is both beautiful and it's hard because I don't want some of the stones that he's putting in my house. <laughs> right? Because like, if, you get, if, if you're in a room that is like, has 10 people in it, somebody doesn't want somebody else to be a stone in the house. <laughs> in the same way that there are parts of me that I would really rather Jesus just cut out. To which he says, nope, I'm not doing that. We're going to heal everything. We're bringing every part of you to glory. I'm like, can't you just kind of like give me general anesthesia like the surgeons do? Cut that out, wake me up, and everything's just fine? Nope. It's all about rehab. Mm. And the same thing is true, not just for parts of me, but for all of our parts together as a collective house. Who in this room, for instance, would you think about and say, yep, uh, the most different stone from me in this room would be George sitting on the other side of the auditorium. <laughs> right? I mean, but you know what I mean? Like, there are these parts of us, of, of us, that are hard to be with. And I want to suggest that it is in the contrast, it is in the difference, it is in all those things that Jesus creates such works of goodness and beauty. 
We are being built into a house. And what do houses do? Houses provide shelter. Houses are artistry acts, right? They're artifacts, right? They, when we build houses well, we would say like, oh my gosh, like what a work of art, right? This is a work of art. People look at this house and they see goodness and beauty because of what God is doing, building us together. But houses are not just things that we go into to sleep and to eat and to have family time. Houses are things that we invite other people into. We invite other people. We invite strangers. We invite all kinds of people in to have dinner with us in our home. Yes? And we have to take care of our home. But there's also something else we do. We don't spend most of our life in a house. A house is a place that we spend important time in order for us to go out to live our life. This house that Jesus is building is intended to send us forth into your vocational places, whether you're going to be a mom or an artist or an architect or an engineer or a carpenter or a teacher or a physician or a lawyer, whatever we're going to do, we're going out from our house to tell people about how cool it is to live in our house. And they say, like, can we come over for dinner? And then he transitions again into his last metaphor. He transitions into this notion of what it means to be priests. He mentions this twice in verse 5 and in verse 9. For you are a holy priesthood. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. This notion, this word of holy, right? Helpful to know that to be holy is something that you can't make yourself. Holy is something that only God makes something. Only God can create holy. If you are a holy priesthood, if you are a royal priesthood, important to know this. Now, I, I don't know how, how you know, in, you know, in, our, in our world, we, we think about priests and those, that, that word conjures up all kinds of imagery for us. And some of us are comfortable with that and some of us are less comfortable with that. But I want to suggest that the notion of being a priest fundamentally is about being someone who is connecting people to God. And in the Jewish tradition, the Levites didn't get land they got the job of connecting people to God. Here's the news. Everybody here, if you're a follower of Jesus, it is your invited pleasure and job to connect people to God. But you've been chosen. And I don't know what it's like for you. Like anybody been like as kids on the playground, like you, you like either were or you know the kid who was like last to be chosen for teams. Anybody like, like you, like you want to be picked. You want to be chosen. And this is the news. Like, Jesus is saying, like, I choose you. I choose you, and I choose you. And I want you on my team. How many of us this morning woke up and we didn't feel very chosen? Well, we felt chosen because we had to come to church. You know, we had jobs to do. We had these things we have to do. But, but, but chosen, delighted in, longed for, desired may not be the first thing that we are thinking that we are. But here's the thing. 
Imagine what begins to happen to us when we, because we are longing every two to four hours, like newborns, and being built up together with others who are going to support that longing, we come to places where we just simply can't get away from the fact that we are the delighted chosen ones of God. Not because we're special, but because God really thinks we're cool. Broken, sinful, screwed up, fractured, Priests, mediators to the world, just like the Levites. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, you are the light of the world. Now, when I hear that, I uh, often think to myself, uh, I, I just feel responsible, right? I feel bad about it. Like, oh, I'm the light of the world. Now what? Like, I've got to just, like, make sure that no, there's, no, there's no dark place. I feel a certain responsibility. But I want to invite us to consider this. What if Jesus is not saying it with that spirit? What if he's saying to you, you are illuminating? To say that you are priests is to say that you are illuminating. And here's my question. When you leave here today, who will be the people that you will anticipate whose lives will be illuminated because you have walked in the room. You priests, you stones, you newborn babes longing for the pure milk of our older brother and King Jesus. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.